Welcome to the Asia Unbound podcast series. I'm Liz Economy, and I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Mosher, who is the president of the Population Research Institute and the author of a provocative new book, Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order. Welcome, Steve. Well, it's good to be here, Liz. Great. So let's start where you begin, which is with Chinese history. When you look back over the centuries, what are the one or two most important things that we need to understand about Chinese history in order to understand China today? Well, I think that uh, John King Fairbank was not far off the mark when he used to begin his classes on Chinese history, saying to his students, you have to remember two things about China, that China is big and China is old. And, of course, the, the bigness is, is also... Um, a reference to isolation, because China was isolated on the North China Plain with its hundreds to the north, the oceans to the east, the deserts to the west, and mountains uh, to the south. So it developed, it, it's really the, the only one great uh, alternative civilization that we see on the planet. Uh, all of the other civilizations, uh, the, the high civilizations at least, uh, were connected, right? The, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the, uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Israelites and, and Rome, of course. Different civilizations, different languages, different different cultures, but all connected, and all led, of course, to modern Western civilization. China developed uh, uh, autonomously from that. Uh, it, it also is is old in this sense. You know, we in America have no sense of history. I mean, if we look back in history, what do we think of? We think of the Pilgrims and Plymouth Rock, uh, the Covenant they signed, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Bill of Rights. The Gettysburg Address, those things that date from two or three hundred years ago. When China looks back at history, it thinks of the Warring States period. It thinks of, of the art of war. It thinks of the spring and autumn annals. And, and the thing about China and the Chinese written language is that we have an ancient civilization whose founding documents are accessible to modern Chinese. Sure, it's written in seal script. It's written in ancient script. But most Chinese with a little effort, could actually read these documents from 2,500 years ago. And so in the Chinese culture, they are living documents. The natural inclination of an American would be to say, well, nothing that happened 2,500 years ago. Uh, it could possibly be that relevant to things today because we say that because of the breaks in our cultural history. The stream of history has been broken at several times by the Dark Ages and so forth. In China, that hasn't happened. It's one continuous culture down to the present day. Uh, China continues to use you know, ideographs and characters, and uh, long after long after the Egyptians abandoned this clumsy form of writing, so so we, we they have access to their to their their ancient writings and and the foundational documents of their country, which I think means that when you try to understand China, you have to understand it without reference to Western political concepts. You have to understand without reference to, to recent innovations like Marxist-Leninist thought. I mean, I know today in China there's a gloss of communism on this ancient bureaucratic totalitarianism that China developed. But it is, it is nothing more than, than uh, a layer uh, on top of a much deeper uh, cultural foundation that we have to go back to. So China's, China developed independently. China, China's cultural stamp, as it were, was sealed uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. And what we see in China today is, is would, would make sense if Qin Shi Huang today were to meet 
Xi Jinping. So Qin Shi Huang, Qin Shi Huang is the first emperor, right? The one who unified China. Qin Shi Huang is the first emperor of the Qin Dynasty who who unified China, of course, back in 321-220 BC. And if he were to meet Xi Jinping today, if he were to talk to him about the form of governance that he sees in China, he would recognize what he had invented. He would recognize a state which had political commissars and the military and the government, a state where the people were not permitted to bear arms, where there was a cult of personality glorifying the emperor. Um, at that time, him. Uh, now we see elements of that in Xi, in Xi Jinping. Uh, we see government propaganda core. We see government censorship. We see certain books not, not necessarily burned as he did back 2,000 years ago, but uh, but certainly censored and prevented. And the, at least we see a purge of scholars with competing worldviews. We see concentration camps, labor camps. In his day, of course, he put them to work building walls and digging canals. Now we see the prisoners put to work building, making goods for export to America and Europe. So, and, and state control of important sectors of the economy. He controlled iron um, and salt, and, and of course you see state-owned enterprises today. So he would, you see, Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of the Qin dynasty over 2,000 years ago, would recognize the political system that was developed in China by the legalists, and which is still in important respects in, in place in China today. Right, and this is what you describe as uh, Confucian on the outside and legalism on the inside. Right. Well, yes. I mean that that was that was the uh, the the Huang uh, Di was a brutal practitioner of, of legalism, which is basically uh, no holds barred, uh, a form of of uh, a very tight top down political control of all elements of society. That, uh, of course, led to rebellion and to the establishment of the next dynasty, the Han Dynasty, which decided that it would be better if the people would kowtow their own accord rather than being forced to, to kneel on the floor. And so they went back to Confucianism, to the idea that the emperor was a father to the people, and used that Confucian system of rights and rituals to maintain social order. Underneath that, of course, if the people didn't kowtow their own accord, they could always, you could always resort to the legalist measures of, um, of various forms of, of, of direct control. But, uh, but that was not always necessary. So when the Chinese Communist Party was formed in the 1920s, they saw, I think, in, in, uh, in Marxist-Leninism, especially as it was being practiced then by, by Lenin in the Soviet Union, uh, they saw a form of government that was, that was very familiar to them, where the party was not, uh, where there was no reference, of course, to the to the emperor as the father of the people. There was to be no emperor. There was to be a chairman of the, the Chinese Communist Party. But the, the chairman and the party were to serve the people. Um, and so there are, um, there, there are resonances, I think, of, of communism with the ancient the bureaucratic totalitarianism that had been practiced in China for 2,000 years. And that I think it was a natural, a kind of a natural segue into that modern ideology which provided the sense that, that, that China was going in, in, uh, in the direction of other modern Western societies. It was adopting a very modern form of governance, uh, communism, which had uh, won great respect in the West, actually had dominated parts of the West, that is to say the Soviet Union, and had a respectful audience even in the heart of um, places like, 
uh, France and Great Britain and, and, and the United States. But within that was, was a very uh, deep and, and dark and, and foundational form of governance. I mean, modern science was not invented in China. Obviously, it was invented in the West. But, but a very, what we regard as a very modern form of governance was invented in China over 2,000 years ago. They ultimately, I think, proved to have more impact in the world as, as, as China today, practicing its uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, seeks to expand its reach to other countries around the world and, and propagate its own distinct worldviews. So I think your book stresses the continuities over Chinese history, and I think they're very important to understand, and you make a really good case for that. But what about the role of individual leaders in China? If we look at the sort of Mao, more contemporary history from Mao Zedong on, do you see differences in the Chinese leaders that you know, make any difference to the way that China conducts its business at home and, and certainly abroad? Uh, because you make the case that sort of all throughout history, China has sought hegemony. But do you think that's the case for, let's just say, you know, Hu Yaobang, Zhao Ziyang, you know, even Hu Jintao, were they really seeking hegemony? Well, here's, here's the first thing I would say in that context, Liz, and it, it is, it is um, now at least clear to me that with every edition of, of thought to the political theory that underpins the rule of the Chinese Communist Party, I mean the thought of Mao Zedong, for example, the, the thoughts of Deng Xiaoping. Uh, Jiang Zemin's Three Represents, where he brought the capitalists into the party. Hu Jintao's Harmonious Socialist Society, and now to Xi Jinping's thought, uh, Xi Jinping, core leader Xi Jinping, that the, the governing ideology of China becomes less and less ostensibly uh, communist and more and more Chinese, as, as China reverts more and more to type as these elements uh, that, that are talked about by these various leaders who interject their thought into the governing ideology, they're, they're referring back to much more ancient forms of, of Chinese thought. I mean, sure, we have a Chinese Communist Party. We have, we have regular meetings of the, uh, the Central Committee. We have a Politburo. We have, we have a structure of, of, of communism as practiced in, in some other, West, other countries. But, but the official ideology is obviously no longer communism. They, they call it themselves socialism, Chinese characteristics. And I would say the Chinese characteristics in question are uh, increasingly an exaggerated view of the superiority of the Chinese history, uh, China's uh, economic past, China's culture, even, even of the Chinese race's corporate body and, and the Chinese state itself. So I think you can summarize socialism with Chinese characteristics as, as a kind of extreme nationalism or even uh, a narcissistic nationalism. So there is that. Do, do individual leaders make a difference? Well, yes, they, 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 they certainly do, but it's usually, in my view, a, a, a tactical difference uh, rather than a strategic difference. I mean, obviously, Deng Xiaoping, who came to power on the heels of, of one of the decades-long rules of one of the great tyrants of, of history, I think all human history, not just Chinese history, Mao Zedong, certainly one of the great mass murders of history, was very careful in reaction to that not to assume a supreme role, very careful in reaction to the poverty that still existed in China to say that uh, we should bide our time and hide our capabilities. So that was a tactical move. Did it mean that he had uh, abandoned uh, the Maoist idea that Mao 
enunciated in 1958 uh, that he wanted to set up an Earth Control Committee, that he had ambitions beyond China's borders? No, I don't think so. I think it was just a rational recognition that, uh, that China needed to concentrate on its own development for a few decades before before moving on to the next stage. I think I think this this takes us to to one of the other ideas in the book, and that is that uh, that 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 we use Western categories of thought to to try and understand China, and those Western categories simply don't apply. Uh, one we've already talked about that, that the idea that China's political culture is communist, it's not. But the second is that, that China is a nation state. Well, certainly we understand that China lives in a world of nation states, but it wasn't a signatory to the Treaty of Westphalia. It doesn't doesn't recognize or give legitimacy to the current world order. It thinks that it 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 is a world order that grew up at a time when China was in, in in sort of in sort of interdynastic chaos that comes comes about every few hundred years, and that if uh, China if China and the West had come into contact during uh, earlier in history, that the roles of China and the West would be reversed. It would not be the Western countries uh, having having treaty ports in China uh, and enjoying extraterritoriality. It would be China having treaty ports in the West and enjoying extraterritoriality. And I thought it was very interesting that um, that in the new bases that China is discussing setting up, now we're talking about military bases in Afghanistan, uh, the new base in Djibouti, uh, other bases in Pakistan, uh, China is now talking about, ironically enough, China is now talking about the fact that, that its local detachments of military police, uh, that its local workers should, should not be governed by the laws of those countries. Uh, they should be governed by the laws of China. Now, if that isn't great historical irony that China, after complaining bitterly about the extraterritoriality enjoyed by the people in, in, in Shanghai and the French and, and English and so forth, concessions, I don't, I don't know what is. That they would now be uh, on the verge of demanding extraterritoriality for their own citizens. So, people need people. People forget that until about 1820, China had the largest economy, uh, obviously the largest population, uh, the largest military uh, in the world. Um, by any reasonable standard, it was the dominant, the dominant power, and it wants to recover that 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 place in history. I think it's quite natural that that they do. Um, I'm not surprised by it, um, and and I think that every leader from uh, Mao Zedong through Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and Xi Jinping had the idea that 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 one day uh, they would like to extend the the world of great harmony, the to to other places of the world, so that they too could enjoy the beneficent uh, uh, governance by by the Chinese state. Uh, which has, I think, in the view of Chinese leaders, a natural right to uh, to move in that, that direction. So let me ask, now, I think Xi Jinping, probably more than any other recent Chinese leader, has uh, articulated a vision for reclaiming some of that uh, centrality of China on, on the global stage. But are there, you know, through his Belt and Road Initiative and, and other you know, global institutions that he's proposed and agreements, but... Are there weaknesses that you see in China today or in sort of Xi's vision that may prevent China from realizing sort of its its grand ambition? Well, certainly. I mean, China is not without its weaknesses. The, it is by no means 
it has been by no means determined by history, that, uh, predetermined by history, that, that China will end up at the end of the 21st century as the, uh, the dominant power on the planet. The weaknesses include self-inflicted wound of a demographic trap that was that, that was put in place in the late 1970s, early 80s, uh, because of the institution of the one-child policy. I actually happened to be in China in 1979 and 1980 when the one-child policy began. I am an eyewitness to women being arrested for the crime of being pregnant and being forcibly aborted, um, in some cases in the third trimester of pregnancy, in other cases almost uh, in, in, the, in the midst of labor pains. So, uh, But this policy, which the Chinese government claims has eliminated 400 million people from the Chinese population, has also done a very... Um, uh, had a very interesting consequence, and, and that is to say that beginning in 2016, uh, China has uh, has suffered from a nationwide labor shortage. I think the shortage in 2016 was 4 million, and the numbers are growing year by year because so many of the last two generations of Chinese have been eliminated by the birth planning, by the planned birth policy. And I think that the recent move uh, to a two-child policy, which is simply, by the way, an adjustment of the planned birth policy. It doesn't mean that the Chinese state is now allowing reproductive freedom. It simply means that they've, they've, they've tweaked the planned birth policy so that now it's permissible to give birth to, for everyone to give birth to two children. Um, that has not produced the number, or reproduced, I guess we should say, the number of children that China needs to main, maintain its um, its current uh, population. So we'll see what they do. There is already baked into the cake uh, this demographic trap that China's falling into with the aging of the population. The rest of the world became rich before it grew old. China's going to grow old before it becomes rich. So that's the problem. I think the other problem, of course, uh, looming in front of uh, the Chinese leadership is the, the debt question. Uh, not just the debt that's, that's on the books, not just the, the, the national debt, but the debt incurred, which is probably mostly off the books by local governments, uh, all the way down to townships uh, and, and local uh, and, and state-owned enterprises, to county governments, to prefectures, to provinces. I think there's an enormous amount of debt out there. It's hard to know exactly how much it is. Uh, it may be uh, 250% or 300, even 300% of the, uh, the GDP, uh, which means it's, a, it's, a, it's an explosion waiting to happen. Um, that is, 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 a weakness, is a weakness as well. I'm not sure that I entirely agree with, uh, with some analysts who say that, that, that this debt bubble would have exploded in the early 2000s uh, were it not for China's entry into the World Trade Organization. But I do believe that the transfer of wealth from China, from the United States to China under the uh, terms of the World Trade Organization, which we've abided by and, and China hasn't, uh, that combined with the $600 billion a year that the FBI estimates that is stolen in intellectual property from the United States has, has served as a kind of, of life raft for uh, the Chinese economy, has kept, it, has kept it growing, has kept it booming. There, there are concerns about if you look at rail traffic in China over the last couple of years, if you look at, uh, 
if you look at uh, energy use in China over the last couple of years, it's significantly down. And those are basic measures of economic activity that I think, unlike the uh, State Statistical Bureau numbers, uh, cannot easily be fudged. So I think there is an economic downturn in China. I think there are serious demographic challenges, and there are serious debt challenges that China China faces. Um, so that, um, that, that could play out in very unhappy ways, I think, for, for, um, for China. Okay. So I think we have time for one last question. And, you know, you mentioned um, China's uh, participation in the WTO and sort of the issue of the theft of intellectual property, which has been a longstanding issue in the U.S.-China relationship. If, if you had President Trump's ear today, you know, there is a, a big debate brewing now in Washington over China, over Chinese influence, over, you know, Chinese uh, technology, over IP theft. All of these issues seem to be coming to ahead at once. What would be the one or two things uh, that you would recommend uh, to the president that he do to sort of get our China policy right? Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that, that I can shorten a long list of actions down to, down to one or two. I, I, I do think that our, our inordinate focus on North Korea is, is to some extent misplaced. Uh, because North Korea today is serving as it has now for the last uh, 70 years as, as, as almost a surrogate of <clears throat> the People's Republic of China. That, that is not to say that, that, uh, that Kim Jong-un takes orders uh, from Beijing. He certainly, he certainly doesn't, but his, his ability to, to wage war, to develop nuclear weapons, to to fire off missiles is heavily dependent upon uh, Chinese components and Chinese uh, imports from China. Um, so I would I would like to see that that situation resolved as quickly as possible so that we can we can turn our attention to I think the real challenge of 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 the world of the future and that is are we going to live in a world of um, of um, democratic states uh, that respect human rights and that share our values and our institutions. Uh, that we thought we were going to, to enter in, in the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Are, or are we going to live in a world where a, a one-party dictatorship is economically dominant and seeks to, uh, quite naturally, replicate itself, uh, not just in places like North Korea and Vietnam, but in other Central Asian countries, in Africa, in Latin America, and so forth? I think that... Um, the um, Chiang Kai-shek criticized during the Chinese Civil War for not, not dealing more directly and, uh, and more forthrightly with the Japanese invaders, and his response was, well, the Japanese will not be able to take and hold China. They will eventually leave. Their disease of the skin, the Chinese Communist Party, is a disease of the heart, and, and they will, if left unchecked, kill us. So I think that the question North Korea is a disease of the skin, and that China itself poses an alternative world uh, where the United States is demoted to at least second place, if not further down the ladder, uh, is, is a disease of the heart, and that's what we should, be, we should be concentrating on now. Doesn't that presume that the Chinese Communist Party will win the hearts of many other people and countries around the world? Is that, is that what you're arguing, then? 
Well, that's 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 an interesting question because obviously the more that China comes to resemble a a national socialist state, the more it it uh, the Communist Party relies on uh, China's own unique history and culture, and the more it makes quite openly uh, racial claims that the Yellow Emperor is the the father not just of all living Chinese but of all Manchus, Mongols, but Tibetans, and so forth. The more they make those kinds of, of, of low particularistic claims, the less attractive uh, their form of, uh, of government becomes in one sense. On the other sense, uh, on the other hand, if you look at China's allies around the world, from North Korea to, to uh, Zimbabwe and Africa, you, you, see, you see dictators who are not attracted to the more particularistic aspects of, of, of Chinese governance, but do like the idea of remaining in power forever. I do like the idea of getting low interest rate loans from the Chinese government. I do like the idea of, 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 of um, the, the various blandishments and payoffs that, that the Chinese government is offering them. And so it is corrupting. It has, for example, in Angola, the Chinese by refurbishing the, the petroleum infrastructure of that African country has basically forestalled the efforts of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to induce more openness into the political system in Angola to encourage respect for human rights, to encourage a free and open press and free and open elections. So you see China working at cross-purposes to the current world order wherever it goes, exploiting local resources, corrupting local officials, undermining small democracies. You see now in New Zealand where the the premier of China, Li Keqiang, went to went to New Zealand a few months ago, and he said that New Zealand-China relations are blooming. In fact, if this continues, uh, New Zealand may be the new Albania. We had wonderful relations with Albania between China and Albania in the 1960s, and we can see that blossoming again in New Zealand now. I don't, think, was, the New Ze- I don't think New Zealand would especially appreciate that analogy. That, that, raised, that raised some eyebrows, but, but I think the, 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 point, the point that he was not trying to make but is, but is very clear to you and I and, and people who enjoy Western forms of governance is that um, is that China would like to would would like to replicate itself around the world? It sees moneybags democracies, moneybag democracies like the United States, and that's how it refers to us, unlike New Zealand, as easily corruptible, as unstable, and as 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 examples of the kind of chaos and disorder that China solved when it came together under the rule of Qin Shi Huangdi, and that it would like to solve for other countries as well. Why should people have to live under the kind of chaos and disorder that we've seen over the last year in the United States with this constant political battles going on from day to day? China will solve all that for us. Right. I think we can, we can um, also see, however, that uh, China sometimes overplays its hand, right, and that the authoritarian nature of, of China and its drive to sort of assert its own interests sometimes at the expense of these other countries uh, where it's engaging, you know, in particular for resource extraction, uh, that it also produces a backlash. Um, and so uh, it's a fine line, um, uh, I think, for China to try to, uh, you know, 
pursue that hegemony, I think, that you describe in your book without incurring you know, a pushback uh, from many of the countries that are uh, engaged. But I, I want to thank you because I think you know, there are many ways to conceptualize China, and I think your book offers a, a really unique and, and interesting one uh, that I am sure is going to play a really important role in the debate that's going on you know, here in the United States around China. And so thank you. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Well, thanks for having me on the, uh, on the program, Liz.